You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1964 film, Dr. Strangelove. So this is a film, we we get this information, uh, exposition, that there are reports that the Russians might be building something... But we don't quite know what it is. Yes, and then and then we get this um, uh, docking sequence of all these planes docking, uh, refueling, refueling in mid-flight. To, yes, mid-flight set to very romantic music. Yes, and then, and then we not go, exactly subtle, yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we get all that, and then we cut to an air force, uh, air force. It is air force, not yes, the Army. yes, air force. air force. Yes, base. We uh, first meet a British. Uh, Transfer, there, there, what is he called? A transfer? Uh, the British, there's a, there's a well, program. He's, he's the XO. Officer. He's an exchange, exchange officer. officer. Yeah, and he's the XO for the uh, general, Jack D. Ripper, <laughs> <Jack> D. Ripper. <laughs> who, who is in charge of this uh, uh, air base. I'm forgetting the name of the air base. What is it called? Burpleson. Right. So. Uh, he's the XO for General Jack D. Ripper, who's the uh, uh, commander of the Burpleson Air Force Base. Correct. Yes. And they they house a lot of B fifty two bombers. Yeah. And they are all armed with hydrogen bombs. Right. And they, At least twenty megatons apiece. Yes. Yeah. They sort of patrol around. This is this was really going on during the Cold War. They're yep. patrolling around kind of that Russian area. Mm-hmm. If there's ever any words that okay. You got to go in there and drop your payload, and they're ready. Yes. And then right. he he uh, calls Mandrake and tells them to put them on alert, at, uh, um, the highest possible alert, and confiscate all private radios, right? And issue wing attack plan R. Yes. Control bombers. Right. Meaning that it's uh, it's this is not a drill that we are at war with Russia and we have to drop the payload. Right. So they. Uh, they uh, send out the, uh, the message to the wing that uh, Plan R is in effect, and one of the things that uh, um, uh, is kind of a safeguard against being fed misleading information or false uh, uh, orders that have c- could come from the enemy, right, is that all radio communications must go through a, a cryptological device. I forget the name of it. Cryptological device, CRM114? Yes. And uh, that, in effect, shuts off um, all communications uh, which could normally occur without the cryptological key. Um, What they have to do in order for a message to get through to any of these planes in this wing that have been sent to their uh, various targets in in Russia is they have to get a three-letter prefix code, which from a modern perspective is, is... 
uh, kind of laughably inadequate. It would not take very long for us today to go through all the possible three-letter combinations that uh, yeah. uh, General Turgidson mentions right later. Um, but back then, it would take a little while, and it would uh, most likely take far too long uh, uh, to get to these, the correct combination of letters uh, and tell the wing to come back correct. So this is all carefully planned um, in the event of uh, the worst-case scenario uh, in a nuclear exchange. Correct. Yes, and while this is going on, the uh, president and many of the military chiefs of staff are being aware of what's going on. They're having a meeting in the war room. One of the first guys we meet is uh, Buck Turgidson. Right. And Buck Turgidson is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yep. He assembles, and you probably know the famous shot of them in this giant war room with the overhead lights. Yes. Him and uh, President uh, Merkin Muffley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're all, and he uh, briefs Muffley on the situation. Yeah. But, and uh, I do love this scene. He's telling him, he's telling that Jack T. Ripper is, well, you know, he's basically gone insane, gone mad. And and then uh, one of my favorite lines is, and he goes, well, I think it's, uh, no, I don't want to judge before all the facts. Are, <laughs> yeah. I think he went over his head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His character is, is just outstanding. He is so funny. George C. Scott does a hell of a job with that role. Yeah, and it gets worse, and then they have to bring in um, the premier, Dmitry Kissoff. No, 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 sorry, not... Um, yeah, he's the premier, premier right? But the they, they bring in the ambassador. Alexei, yeah. And he has to talk to the Dmitry. Dmitry have a hotline to talk to each other, but Dmitry was interrupting, but he's having some... He's on a bender drinking. Yes. So... Um, president's got to talk to him and then they, through these talks they find out that the russians have a doomsday device yes which in the case of if they are ever attacked then they would this device would set off all their weapons yes on the united states automatically automatically, automatically undo it. without any uh possibility of human intervention right and the idea here uh this actually was an idea that was taken from some uh, uh, economists who were uh, strategists of conflict in the early 60s. Uh, there's a guy named Herman Kahn. There's another one named Thomas Schelling, who became quite famous during this time period for books they wrote. Uh, Schelling wrote uh, Strategy of Conflict and Arms and Influence, and Kahn wrote uh, On Thermonuclear War which was a play on Karl von Clausewitz's On War. And it's a book-length examination of uh, the um, uh, kind of the ins and outs of the rational thing, uh, the allegedly rational uh, uh, decision-making processes that uh, statesmen would go through uh, in the event of uh, thermonuclear war, when they consider thermonuclear war. So one of the things that I think it is Khan, I'm not 100% sure about this, but one of the things he does talk about in that book is this hypothetical doomsday device. And uh, uh, the idea behind it, 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 it makes some rational sense, right? And, and you can kind of think about it this way. If um, you 
are uh, have uh, as one nation uh, have, have some sort of an idea that you're going to be uh, there's a, a, a good chance of a nuclear strike from your enemy right the other side um, it pays it, it would seem to be a good deterrent uh, to have something like this happen in in the uh, the uh, scientific uh, specifics of this hypothetical example this fictional example in the film are somewhat based on something the physicist uh, Louis Zillard came up with he was one of the guys that worked on the Manhattan Project in fact he's the guy that had Einstein write the letter to FDR saying you you guys need to develop this first the Germans are working on it right um, well one of the things uh, he su suggested at one time or another was it would be uh, it would be possible to put uh, some form of cobalt in a hydro uh, um, hydrogen bombs, which would in effect um, increase the um, uh, uh, radioactive half life of the fallout debris that would come from the bombings, right? And the idea here is okay. Uh, since there's no way for us to intercept every single bomber and every single missile that our enemy might send over us, uh, what we need to do is uh, very quickly and very publicly develop a doomsday device, which essentially would, uh, and we tell them, look, this thing is there, and the only way it'll go off is if you guys attack us. And oh, by the way, there is no way for us to interfere with this thing. What it will do is set off a high number of uh, thermonuclear devices, all you know, peppered with this cobalt um, uh, mixture. And essentially, uh, there's such a high number of these things that uh, once that happens and the the fallout clouds circle the globe, it will wipe everything out. Every living thing will, will die from radiation poisoning. If you guys attack us, there won't be anything left for you, including your homeland, let alone any, any other part of the globe. So just so you know it's there, and just so you know there's no way we can interfere with this thing once it kicks off. Nothing we can do about it. Right? So this is a hypothetical case that was discussed in, in one of these books. And, uh, um, apparently, from what I read about Stanley Kubrick, is he was in London uh, about the time that Thomas Schelling's uh, article, it was called On Meteors, Mischief, and War. Uh, it came out and it was published in some magazine over there in London. And he saw this thing, and it kind of gave him the idea to do a film based on this. Mm -hmm. And and then he he talked with Schelling, and he talked with the author of a book called Failsafe, and uh, some other people. And and he actually had these had had these guys uh, consult with him on uh, developing the script. And so that's how the uh, cobalt uh, uh, based uh, doomsday device comes to be. Um, uh, in the film, but you can see how it makes kind of rational sense to have something like this. Um, uh, and ab absent a doomsday device, um, what you had uh, going on there and what people worried about in the early 60s and to some extent later in the late 60s and, the, in, and through the 70s, but more so in the 60s and 50s too, was... Um, um, uh, the the runaway uh, the worries about a runaway arms race because 
An arms race is inevitable unless you can come up with the perfectly uh, impervious doomsday device, which we have to remember was only hypothetical and remains hypothetical to this day. Um, absent something like that, what you have is uh, each side uh, kind of uh, in, in a technological race to uh, make it possible for them to prevail in a nuclear exchange, right? And uh, you get, at, at some point, you get a stasis between the two powers because they both develop technology more or less of an equivalent degree, right? Uh, but it's an unstable stasis because both sides will also continue to um, uh, research and attempt to one-up the other side. So at some point, you have such a high number of um, weapons on both sides that they come to realize, well, there's kind of a second alternative here. We can both publicly acknowledge the ability of the other side to completely eliminate us, right? And we can both publicly... Uh, um, pledge that if we are uh, subject to a surprise attack, that we will uh, uh, retaliate in kind, right? And as long as both sides kind of accept this, and it's almost impossible not to accept it given the nature of the conflict, um, you have an, a, a second, as it were, level of stasis, something called, uh, as you no, and this is kind of what they were exploring in the film, the, the notion of mutually assured destruction. This being, uh, um, again, not a, a perfect uh, deterrent, but at least a deterrent for any, any one of those two powers um, uh, setting off a nuclear exchange. Um, now, what's kind of interesting is I was kind of researching this and thinking about the history of this, especially uh, during the arms control, arms control talks that were uh, very much a part of the uh, 60s and certainly the 70s, um, a, a kind of an interesting spinoff of this uh, notion of mutually assured destruction. is Both sides at a point realize that perhaps it might be better that we don't uh, take steps that will in some way or another let the other side know that we've done something that will kind of step us away from the brink of being totally destroyed. So there were some interesting uh, uh, debates on this. Um, if you look at uh, uh, Switzerland and Sweden and how they uh, contemplated nuclear war, um, you're going to see something very curious there. Uh, Switzerland, for sure, I don't think Sweden did this, but they both have very, very extensive fallout shelter uh, infrastructure to where they can literally hide away uh, a majority of their population. In the case of Switzerland, um, they actually require by law that every um, um, uh, dwelling have an associated fallout shelter. And this has been a regulation for decades. So they've got a very extensive system. Now, what's kind of interesting is if you read some of the literature, American thinkers thinking about this thought, well, maybe we should do this. This, this makes perfect 
sense on one level. Um, we can protect our populace if, if, if we require um, fallout uh, shelters of this kind on an extensive basis, either through regulations of, of housing construction like the Swiss did, or by building gigantic fallout shelters and, and giving people instructions how to get to these things. Um, and, and some people said, yep, on the surface, that sounds like a good idea. But if we do that and we're, you know, publicize it, or if it becomes public, as it probably would, whether we tried to keep it a secret or not, that might worry the Soviets because they don't have a system like that. And uh, it would kind of move us away from that precipice of being vulnerable as they are, right? So that would disrupt the balance again and the mutually assured destruction thing. So uh, the argument goes, we shouldn't do that. We have to leave ourselves vulnerable so that uh, they still see there's an even balance there. Interesting case. Um, and that's the kind of thinking that's... Uh, I think engaged in this film. It's kind of interesting because it explores all, or not all of these, but a good number of, of these kinds of issues. Yeah, and the one that they bring up is the um, missile gap or bombing gap. Where yeah. You have to have almost an equal amount of nukes compared to the other. And even when at the end we talk about where they're having these vast underground shelters, but. Yeah, the, the, the mine shaft gap. Mine shaft gap. Yeah, it's great stuff. So that's the beauty of this film is it parodies all of this kind of thinking um, that occurred. And there's another one. I think we're we're always talking about General Turgidson here because he he has all the best lines I think in this film, um, and some of them quite literally are lifted from these economists of warfare. By the way, they literally took them out of some of these essays. Um, the term Megadeth, did you see that on the uh, notebook that is in front of Bucky Turgidson? Yeah. Um, that comes, not it's not an exact quote from the books of Khan, um, because he very kind of, in the cold way economists do, uh, talked about uh, kind of the utilitarian costs of various nuclear war scenarios. And he started talking about things in terms of millions of deaths. And people obviously were not comfortable with this, that were commenting on this. And they, they uh, so, somebody coined the phrase megadeaths to kind of reflect what they what saw as his rather cold way of thinking about this. And then uh, an interesting little bit of trivia here. I think there's a heavy metal band uh, that yeah, was big in the, were they big in the, in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, and apparently they drew their name from this. I didn't know that until I literally was read about it here prepping for this. Uh, one of the funnier scenes is uh, uh, also illustrative of the, the kind of thinking that went, in, went into these uh, books and essays that were big in the 60s on uh, uh, nuclear warfare. Um, Turgidson says this, and again, it makes sense. Look, uh, the planes are on their way. Uh, they're probably no more than an hour away from their targets. There is not going to be any way we're going to be able to call them back. So what we have to do is think strategically. And uh, he tells the president, I forget the exact quote, but he says, you know, if we go ahead and go through with this and follow up with uh, uh, a full-scale attack, 
uh, not just this wing, but all of our stuff. Let's send all of their stuff their way. Um, we'll be able to knock out 90% of their capabilities. They'll only be left with 10% of their capabilities with which to respond. So uh, what will happen in that situation is uh, we will get only 20 million deaths. We're so, not going to get our hair must. And we won't get our hair must uh, as opposed to 150, right? Um, again, um, kind of exposing and kind of the core of this kind of cold economist's way of thinking about nuclear war that uh, again um, he, they're putting it in the in the in the uh, in the mouth of an air force general but what's i think important to note here in this film is um, the actual train of thought here that is being uh, parodied and actually word for word lifted at, at some points isn't coming from military officers. It, it came from these economists uh, who were uh, uh, writing about the strategy of nuclear war. It, it's interesting that uh, Kubrick used these guys as consultants in the film, and they were more or less willing to allow this use of their words. I, I think that that's intriguing in itself. Well, it's interesting you're bringing it up because it also the one of the people that worked on the screenplay was Peter George, who worked because this was loosely based on a novel called Red Alert. Yeah, and that but that novel was played completely seriously. Seriously, yes. And in that same year, because you brought it up, there was another film about this pretty much the same issue called Failsafe with uh, Henry Fonda as the president and other people, mm-hmm. and that is once again completely dead serious. Serious, and I believe even. Co- the similarities were so much that Kubrick and uh, Peter George sued Columbia Picture, uh, sued whoever who made the novel, mm-hmm. and they said it was too similar. Hmm, interesting. And both those movies came out at the same time, but you have one that takes it 100 dead complete seriously. Yeah. And this one where, you know, like you said, it's a complete satire. Yeah. And what I recall is the exact moment when he considered uh, that it would be best to approach this as a, a black comedy was when he was sitting with his script writers and these economists that were helping him out with this uh, uh, film. And they had a heck of a, they had a hard time, uh, Schelling actually puts it this way in, in the interview I was watching where he talks about his work on this. He doesn't have a lot to say about it, but he does say that they had a heck of a time, uh, quote, getting this war started. And uh, they eventually... Uh, happened upon the idea of having one of the Air Force generals go nuts. And they cashed in on some of the uh, conspiracy theories that were hot during the day, including the completely actual uh, fluoridation conspiracy theory. That was a real thing. There, there were people back then that literally thought the fluoridation of water was some communist conspiracy. I mean, so, you, kind of, you kind of see that almost even today with Alex Jones. His famous line is, I don't want them putting chemicals in the water to yeah. turn the frickin' frogs gay. Yes, it's the same sort of thing. And, you know, it's a, it's a persistent human uh, 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 behavior, it seems like, that there people come up with whacked-out conspiracy theories. And what's interesting about that is at that point where he said, uh, where they kind of all decided in the script-writing process that the, this was the only way to make this work, at that point, Kubrick said, well, then I'm going to make this a comedy because 
if we had if if we had kind of followed a, a more traditional route where everything's kind of rationally motivated, um, we found ourselves getting locked into a position where the war would actually never get started, <laughs> right? So we couldn't we couldn't very well have a a, a, a script to go with. So. Um, now that uh, Schelling has apparently suggested we just have one of the Air Force generals go haywire, um, I'm going to kind of cash that in full circle and make this a comedy. And that's when he decided to do a comedy, because apparently early on the script was going to be another dead serious uh, treatment of nuclear war. Um, and I think that it worked out for the better, actually, because yeah, I mean, this is a very memorable movie precisely because it is a comedy about a very obviously important topic and And a great commentary on uh the kind of strategic thinking that was going on at the time yeah and it looks like the the public even responded more to this movie than failsafe failsafe is held in pretty high regard yeah but at box office it did more money and you know more people know Dr. Strangelove, I think, than Failsafe. Yes, yes. And it... Go ahead. And one of the interesting characters, because the Peter Sellers famously played both, you know, Dr. Strangelove, he played the present, and he also played Lionel Mandrake. Yes. And, you know, the, the Mandrake character, it's, you know, Sellers is British, so he's basically playing as almost as British and, you know, stiff upper lip as possible. Yes. Always trying to polite, listening to Ripper's conspiracy theories, but trying to get the recall code, but not just trying to over beat him up or overpower him. Yeah. So it's like, just tell me the recall code, Jack. And I wonder if it shows as. That's showcasing that Britain is sort of in the middle between the, their friend, the U.S., and even though they are also enemies with the Soviets, yeah. but they are not as almost yeah. helpless. They're the junior partner now, as opposed to back in the day when it was flying as Spitfires and they were equal partners, so to speak, during World War II. Yeah, there's a, I think there's an element of that there. Um, but I also think it's just another uh, probably good old-fashioned um, – uh, portrayal of the uh, contrasts between uh, the typical British character and the typical brusque American um, that is uh, uh, General Jack Ripper, and right? With Major Kong, he's a Texan cowboy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Played by an actual cowboy, uh, yes. Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens is great in this film. And it's interesting because one of the things is this was 1964, just two years earlier, you had probably more famous events of the Cold War, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where it seemed like almost this event would happen. Yeah, uh, and um, a lot of the reason that um, uh, the, the kind of stra- stra- um, strategic thought that uh, is being parodied in this film uh, gained credence was because it played a part in a resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had a, um, a kind of a, a, a spectrum of options that were available at that time um, to include the blockade that actually um, was partially responsible for the removal of the missiles. But um, also you had people like Curtis LeMay suggesting that uh, uh, military action happen early uh take out the missile the 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 missile installations 
and if if need be, in, invade the island as they had unsuccessfully tried with the pig, Bay of Pigs invasion fiasco. Um, and uh, if you read the memoirs of Robert McNamara, who was uh, Kennedy's uh, Secretary of Defense, and he went on to be Johnson's Secretary of Defense, at least through part of his administration, um, they claim that their way of uh, looking at things through this kind of economist's uh, uh, lens, uh, considering the situation to be a bargaining process, was what brought them ultimately to the uh, successful conclusion of this without having to resort to war. Um, now, when they do mention this, they 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 uh, some people do and some people don't also mention the fact that there really was some bargaining going on uh, during that particular episode. Um, we uh, ended up removing uh, missiles from uh, uh, the Middle East and uh, Greece in return for the Russians removing the, the missiles from Cuba. So it wasn't just the blockade that did the trick. It was this uh, uh, give and take. Um, so the success that those uh, 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 theoreticians had in their role as uh, being influences on people like McNamara uh, during that uh, episode gave credence to their point of view with other matters, including uh, uh, nuclear warfare on a global scale when you consider that. So uh, that's the reason this was such a hot topic uh, in 1964, because this was the heyday of these guys. Schelling wrote two books, one in 1960, the other one came out in 66, that basically uh, treated warfare as a bargaining process. And uh, other people wrote such books. And, and their point of view uh, was applied to actual wars going on at the time. The most, uh, I'd say, infamous example being the graduated um, escalation strategy that was used in Vietnam. Um, that, that was uh, McNamara's baby and it was uh, inspired by this school of thought in economics. Now there, uh, it didn't turn out as well. <laughs> As, as it did in the as allegedly did in the Cuban case, um, but uh, that's what I think. I think gives this film its uh, staying power because it's it's not merely a comedy; it's a caustic commentary on this kind of thinking um, that that was very much in the milieu at the time. And uh, one other big figure that's represented in this movie famously by Dr. Strangelove is Werner von Braun. Yeah. He was first cuz cuz his character always has that alien hand syndrome and he keeps accidentally giving the Heil Hitler salute. <laughs> yeah. And he, he sometimes mistakenly refers to the president as Mein Führer. Yes. And uh but von Braun was famously part of worked with the Nazis during World War II, helped develop their V2 rocket program. Yes. And then because of Operation Paperclip, we got a lot of those German scientists brought over here, and they helped us mainly in the space race, but also yeah. missile technology and uh, rocket ships and rockets and everything. Yep. Uh, he, he, I think, I think uh, Strangelove is a composite character, too, because I, I, I read that he was there. 
Kahn, this uh, Werner Kahn was another one that was uh, supposed to be included in that character, at least inspired him. And another guy named John von Neumann, who was, uh, Neumann, excuse me, who was uh, very much a part of the uh, Manhattan Project and also one of these guys that thought uh, in very large terms about the strategy of nuclear warfare and the strategy behind uh, 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 hydrogen bomb arsenals. Um, so um, I, I'm, I'm sure Kubrick was aware of all this history and decided to kind of throw all these characters into that one guy. And uh, You have to say, uh, Peter Sellers just does a great job with that character. He is hilarious. Not quite sure why his hand won't... won't uh, release its grip on on his slide rule device, but it's it's hilarious. And then throughout the whole film, we talked about it earlier. With the there's a kind of a I think Kubrick must have been giggling when he was writing the screenplay with like with the docking sequence. But even the whole idea of the precious bodily fluids being tapped was because Rip, Jack Ripper was imp, had an impotence problem. Yeah, yeah. And then the Major Kong riding the yeah. rocket as it's approaching its destination. There's all this, you know, imagery and even the fact that Turgidson's always have, you know, as a mistress and his mistress dials him up in those secret in the war room, yeah. Number. Yes, he's like, it's right. not just physical. I want to be <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Bucky Turgidson. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, you know, if you if you think about that, this this uh uh, uh this movie is almost exclusively male. She's the only female character. And then um, and seeing all of that and seeing all the euphemisms that, that are used certainly were in vogue at that time and still are used when we're talking about military matters. Um, uh, I don't know why uh, uh, the uh, phrase uh, occurred to me at that opening sequence, vertical insertion, you know, you know, that, that, that's, yeah, you know, Freud would have a feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. And I, uh, read somewhere that um, somebody actually wrote Kubrick after seeing the film and pointed all these things out and said, did anybody ever notice? He said, I was waiting for somebody to notice this. I was doing that on purpose. You know, pretty funny. And even the whole uh, bit at the end when they're talking about, you know, this fallout shelter to reproduce the population. And yeah. Ten women for every man, and all the women are going to be good looking. Yeah. So. Bucky perks up then, yeah. doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. The, 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 uh, <laughs> Russian goes, ah, you make some interesting ideas. <laughs> yes, right. You know, and what's what's kind of funny there is Turgeson being a, not surprisingly kind of a hypocrite there because uh, what, what was it? Um, at, at, at some point where they first call up Premier Kissoff, which I just love the name, by the way, um, and and the, uh, the ambassador says, you know, I, I think he's partying. If He's a man, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And Turgis' first reaction is to say, degenerate. A, a degenerate commie pervert. Yeah. And he's no better. I mean, it's just hilarious. The, I guess showing the commonalities on both sides, even though they're uh, completely unaware of their commonalities. And uh, getting close to the end of my questions here, one other thing I do want to bring up is because this is one of the most influential films ever made, and I think a couple year about yeah two years ago, there was a film that was very influenced by this. I haven't seen it yet, but it was called Don't Look Up. And from what I heard, it's mainly about this this asteroid that's coming to Earth. The scientists are trying to prepare and warn the government, but the government I 
I haven't seen it, but it's basically like a satire on the government's response in the last de- two decades of the global warming and climate change. Yeah, yeah. The asteroids metaphor for climate change and how we're just we're going to let the thing happen and destroy us. We're not going to take any precautions. Yeah. But from what I because I, I didn't have much interest in it because this is it was the same director that did the movie about Dick Cheney Vice. Yeah. And the criticisms for that movie were it's very smug. It's very beating you over the head with its message and kind of insufferable. Where even people who mm-hmm. agree who don't like Dick Cheney didn't like the movie because they thought it was just kind of insufferable. Yeah, and it had this movie had the same things. Like even people who are on the side of climate change, who aren't climate change deniers, were even saying like this is just really annoying and it's not going to change anybody's mind. It's preaching to the choir. The movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what I heard about that film, too. And when I heard about it, it, it brought to mind the earlier film, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That one was also kind of insufferably beating you, beating you over the head. And they even had an actor I admired very greatly, a Canadian actor, um, playing the Dick Cheney character, even down to wearing a cowboy hat. It's like, oh, God. Yeah, you're not, you know. It's the director of uh, Independence Day. You're not going to get any really subtle, nuanced messages. No. And, and I just remember with my eyes rolling so far in the back of my head when I watched that film. I, I, I can't take another film like that. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. So before we sign off, any question, any uh, further things you want to bring up? Uh, I... I this is one of my all-time favorite movies because it is just this crazy, dare I say, dark but screwball comedy. Um, and I think Kubrick really made a great decision when he decided to go black and white with this film. Um, it just works for it because um, it it captures, uh, in a way, uh, a kind of a film noir at, uh, atmosphere in blending it with the with the dark comedy and the commentary on game theory, which is essentially what we've been talking about, these economists developed with regard to warfare, it just works brilliantly. Um, and um, you always notice uh, uh, details when you on second or third viewings of this thing, multiple viewings of these things. Uh, the thing that I I actually walk away pretty impressed with is he does a good job, and this is, tangential to all the other stuff really but he does a very good job of portraying the professionalism and uh, the attention to detail and the high level of uh, competence of that air crew in that b-52 bomber if you think about it Um, apparently the Air Force did not allow him to use an actual B-52 to film this thing. So they had to build the interior of that thing from scratch with all the fail-safe switches, the comm switches, and everything else, and did a bang-up job. And I think they do a very good job of showing how well-coordinated and well-trained that crew was as they went about their mission. Um, I remember that was the first time I watched this film. One of which was played by Darth Vader. That's right. That's right. And he does a, he's the bombardier, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, and moved on to the Death Star after this, I guess. But um, I, I really like that, that aspect of the film. I really did. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics of the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. 
If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing, Mein Führer, I can walk! <laughs>